Well, we come now to uh, the reading and preaching of God's Word. Um, we're approaching a turning point in the Gospel of Mark in our study of, of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 8, in, in the very next section, will be kind of, we've been looking at who is Jesus. That's the first half of, or the first part of Mark. Uh, and then we'll be looking at uh, where Jesus is going, to the cross, and we're going to be following him there um, uh, after next week. Um, but last week I mentioned that there were two parallel sections here that we're looking at between chapter 6 and chapter 8, beginning with two feedings, then two confrontations with the Pharisees, then two discussions about bread, two healings, and then two declarations of faith. Um, and so we're going to be looking at a piece of that this morning. This week we're going to look at the, the latter confrontation of the Pharisee with the Pharisees, that second discussion about bread, and the second of the two healings. And tomorrow, we'll crown it with the confession of Peter uh, in his declaration that Jesus, in fact, is the Christ. Um, but to get there, we have to go through this second uh, set of, of things. So with that in our minds, and, and that sort of structure, thinking about these two parallel uh, things that Mark is trying to tell us, I want us to turn our minds and our hearts to the text. Let's read. We're going to read the Gospel of Mark, uh, starting in verse 11. Mark chapter 8, verse 11. Hear God's word. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, and how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they, became, and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly, and he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask uh, once again for your grace to be present in the preaching of your word, that you would apply these truths to our hearts for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
There was a man, a friend of mine, who lived in Pittsburgh. And his name was Aubrey. He was a troubled man. He had many problems. He struggled with paranoia and delusions. He was hard of hearing. He had ocular implants. And he was partially blind. In fact, he was slowly losing his sight and would eventually go completely blind. And he talked about it as if it was like a tunnel closing in uh, slowly over time. I would often go over to his apartment and I would read scripture with him and eat with him and talk with him and pray with him. And he's somebody who struggled deeply with his disabilities. Sometimes we would have a plan to get together, and he would call me, and he was too anxious. He didn't want me to come over. Sometimes when I was at his house, he would just break down in tears because he felt as though he were losing his mind. Yet, in all of that, Aubrey was never bitter or angry toward God. You see, he was, he was quite remarkable. Above all things, he loved Jesus. He had faith, and he understood and knew that his suffering was a temporary thing. And he was a believer who could clearly see his Savior, even if his physical disabilities caused the world for him to be in shadow. I learned a lot from Aubrey, and as I reflect on his faith, I wonder if it often is quite the opposite for those of us who have our faculties, who can think clearly and hear and see clearly. We have control over our environment. We don't live in fear with paranoia and anxiety and delusion. We can hear and we can see and we can touch. Yet maybe It's our perceived control over our physical world that makes it harder sometimes, possibly, for us to see Jesus. An interesting thing. My friend Aubrey could see Jesus very clearly, despite the fact that he could hardly see me. Maybe it's sometimes the opposite with us. Our text this morning challenges us to consider our own spiritual blindness or blind spots. We see in our text uh, the rank unbelief of the Pharisees. And we see the disciples struggle to perceive Jesus for who he is. But finally, what we see most importantly is we see Jesus patiently, patiently clearing the blindness from the blind man, just as he is also patiently revealing himself to those who struggle to see him clearly. And this is what I want us to see this morning. I want us to see clearly the mercy and patience of Jesus who gently clears the scales from our eyes. I want us to behold Christ, the one who patiently bears with us. Look at this in three parts. First, I think spiritual blindness requires divine intervention. Spiritual blindness requires divine intervention. There are three acts, if you will, to our text this morning, culminating 
in the healing of the blind man. But the first two acts leading up to that healing are marked by spiritual rather than physical blindness. And and they're a bit different. So we have to see that. Um, In the first act, we see Jesus confronted once again by the Pharisees. We aren't given too many geographical details as to the confrontation, but we do know from the previous section that after the feeding of the 4,000, he and his disciples got into the boat and went to the other side. Um, They left uh, the Decapolis, and now they were in Galilee, and they went to uh, Dalmanutha. Some texts read this as Magadan. Um, It was in the northeast uh, section of the lake. So the Pharisees... Upon arrival, the Pharisees seek Jesus out to confront him and argue with him. They wanted a definitive sign from Jesus. The text says, a sign from heaven. It simply meant that they wanted some sort of indisputable sign from God that he was, in fact, who he claimed to be. You see, uh, Jesus had done all sorts of miracles, but they weren't sure whether those miracles belonged to God or were from uh, the devil. So, so they wanted some indisputable, undeniable sign. And so you can understand Jesus' exasperation. He had demonstrated over and over again by his powerful miracles that he was in fact who he claimed to be. And then interestingly, Jesus says that no sign will be given to this generation. So he he is exasperated, he sighs in his soul, and he says no sign will be given to this generation. Not just the Pharisees, but to the generation. And that's an interesting thing here. It's it's reminiscent, this language of generation is reminiscent to God's exasperation with the Israelites in the wilderness, a generation who wandered rebelled, who failed to trust God despite the magnificent work that God did in redeeming them as his people. There's similar language here when Jesus says to this generation. But what does Jesus mean when he says no sign will be given? Certainly all the miracles in one sense were signs, right? They pointed to Jesus' authority and power. We see this in the other Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of John. Not so much in the Gospel of Mark, and I think that there's some import to that. But of all the things that Jesus has done and will do, his rising from the dead was certainly a sign that he was the King of Kings. But this is not the kind of sign that the Pharisees had in mind. You see, They viewed his miracles as needing verification, stamp of approval. They believed these actions could have been just the machinations of the devil himself. You see, what the Pharisees wanted was something akin to a blinking neon sign held out by the hand of God saying, here's my son. Of course, God had sent at the baptism of Jesus the dove as a sign, and he declared, this is my son. My beloved son, and him I'm well pleased. But nevertheless, this is what the Pharisees wanted. Public, definitive proof that he was from God. You see, at the root of the issue was not the ambiguity of Jesus. 
In fact, Jesus will say in the Gospel of Luke, in the story of the rich men and Lazarus, that if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You see, there is no proof, no sign, no action that can take the scales off the eyes of the spiritually blind, save the one who comes to do that very thing. It requires a drastic change, going from blindness to vision. Now, there was one sign that was possible, I suppose, but it wasn't a sign. It was the thing in itself. You see, if Jesus wanted, he could have come with the angels and with all the glory of heaven. But if Jesus had come like that, as he will when he comes again, yes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Everyone will know who he is at that moment. But it won't be a time to turn in faith. It will be a time of judgment. You see, there is in this short section a warning to you who are looking for some bolt of lightning from heaven to prove that what has been revealed in Scripture is true. That Jesus is who He says He is. You see, faith is of a different character. It doesn't look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The Hebrews puts it this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Friends, don't wait for a sign. Don't wait for some, whatever you want, scientific evidence that ties up all your questions in a neat little bow. And I want to be really clear here. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that faith in this sense, when I say it's not of sight, I'm not saying that it's unreasonable, right? I want to be really clear. Or that you have to have some grand leap and it's all contradictory to all evidence available. I I don't think that's true. Just as Jesus had clearly revealed himself to the Pharisees and the crowd, so faith in this sense is not unreasonable. What is revealed to us in God's word and scripture is eminently reasonable. And honestly, there's no other system in the world that makes sense of all the chaos and brokenness that we see around us. But you see, faith goes beyond our limited, our human capacity to reason. And it's not dependent upon our fallible logic and our limited understanding and knowledge. What faith does is it receives and it rests. It receives Christ with open hands, despite our inability to fully comprehend and understand. And it rests in trust in Christ to save us from our sin, to redeem us. That's what faith is. But here's the thing, and it's really important. Faith is a gift. It's, it's the fruit of the miracle of rebirth or, or regeneration. In our stubbornness and sin, we will continue, apart from the grace of God, we will continue to clamor for a sign. We will persist in our unbelief because we make ourselves the arbiters 
of all truth. That's the nature of rebellion. We become gods of ourselves and we want Christ and his word and God all to come under our judgment and our understanding. You see, unless our hearts are changed, unless the Holy Spirit takes that heart of stone and makes it into a heart of flesh that beats for God, we we will always want one more proof before we submit. Because God comes under our judgment. That's the nature of a rebellious, stubborn, blind heart. Jesus said to another Pharisee in the Gospel of John, his name was Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, here's the thing. You may hear those words and think, well, I must be born again. I can't do anything. There's nothing that I can do. So I'm just going to walk away because you're saying it it requires a heart change. And and I want to say, yes, that's true. There is nothing that you can do to save yourself. You need divine intervention. You need God in Christ to save you. That's the gospel. But that doesn't mean that you ought to become laissez-faire about your salvation. It doesn't mean you ought to just say, throw up your hands and say, well, God will save me if he wants, but I'm just going to wait on that thing. You see, God works through means. And if you're here this morning, he has brought you here. And he's brought you here to hear God's word. He is full of mercy and grace, and he's calling you to believe, to put your faith in him. He's calling you to repent, to trust And he says in his word that all who call on his name will be saved. So instead of walking away and waiting for some moment, friend, today is a moment. Rather than clamoring for a sign, for God to prove himself to you, instead of acting like the Pharisees here in our text, cry out to Christ to open your eyes that you may see the wonders of his grace. In other words, humbly open your hands and receive and rest in him. Because we're blind, we desperately need divine intervention. We need Christ to open our eyes that we might see him as our savior. But second, Divine intervention is not one and done. Following the confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus and his disciples get back in the boat and head back across the lake. Now, after all that has transpired with the mass feedings, somehow the disciples forgot to bring bread and they only had one loaf in the boat. Which is... I think humorous, and I think the text is bringing out some of the humor in this. But Jesus, thinking about his argument with the Pharisees, is deeply concerned about the disciples. And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. You see, he was concerned that the disciples wouldn't be like those who demand signs as a prerequisite to belief. And the image of the leaven was to say simply that it only takes a small amount to affect them, to to impact them. And he was concerned. 
And then with the deepest of irony, when the disciples hear him start to talk about leaven, where do their minds go? The bread, right? Oh, yeah, Jesus, leaven, that reminds me. We don't have any bread. Um, they miss the point. Instead of being prodded on to greater faith, their own little faith is exposed. They're reminded they don't have enough bread for their journey. Now, there were baskets and baskets full of food remaining in the feast. (laughs) Jesus will play this out very, very uh, clearly in just a moment. There's baskets full of food, and Jesus had put a grand display on of his divine power and his love and his concern for those who were physically hungry. We looked at that last week. The disciples could, in theory, have brought some of those extras along with them. They could have trusted that Christ, even if they had forgotten those things, would provide all that they needed. And even if they didn't have those things, they could have asked him to sustain them. They could have trusted in this moment. Instead, I think the discussion on the boat went something like this. Peter turns to Andrew and says, did you bring the food? Andrew looks blankly and says, I thought Matthew had it. Matthew says, I was in charge of the luggage, not the food. Then John pipes up and says, well, I brought a loaf for myself and Jesus. And on it goes. Blame and frustration in the boat. Meanwhile, Jesus looks at them incredulously. Seriously, guys? Seriously? Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And then he draws those Old Testament prophetic words that you probably never want to hear if you're the disciples. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Are you like those Israelites of old? Do you not remember what just happened? Not once, but twice. Did you forget about the leftovers? You could imagine the sheepishness in the boat right about now when Jesus asks, and how many baskets were left over the first time? Twelve. And how many baskets were left over the seventh time? Second time? Seven. Do you still not understand that I am He? I am the Christ. I am the Lord of glory. I am the one who not only gives you your daily bread, but I am your Savior and your Lord. Do you not understand? You can sense the exasperation in Jesus' voice. You see, the disciples, unlike the Pharisees, they did believe. They followed Jesus. They, They even went out and proclaimed the coming of the kingdom. Yet these disciples were a work in progress. And isn't there great comfort in that? And looking at the life of, and faith of the disciples, isn't, isn't there great comfort in knowing that we, too, are a work in progress? You see, Christ opens our hearts and our eyes to see him. He causes our hearts 
to, to believe. To, he gives us the gift of faith and we lay hold of Christ. We receive him and we rest on him and we rejoice in his salvation. And yet at the same time, every day of our lives, there is uncovered small and sometimes large vestiges of unbelief. I trust Jesus for my salvation, but I worry all the time about money. I trust that Jesus loves me, but I don't trust that he can actually rid me of my besetting sin, of my anger and my selfishness and my pride and my sexual brokenness and whatever it is. I trust that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, that he rules over the nations, but I don't trust that he can rule over our nation. I don't know that he can bring justice. We could go on and on with the list. But the good news is that our faith is not one and done. Yes, the faith of a mustard seed is all that is necessary, the size of a little bit of faith. But it's not all that we're called to be. We are a work in progress. The theological concept here, of course, is sanctification. The Holy Spirit is at work in transforming us day in and day out from one degree of glory to another. We are not what we once were, and we are not yet what we will be. And there's great comfort in this. Knowing that though unbelief remains, it does not mean that Christ is not continually active in our hearts and lives. This truth is one of the greatest truths that Christ bears patiently with us. And this has implications not only for how we view ourselves and the comfort that we experience in knowing this truth that we're a work in progress. I think all deep down we all know and understand that. And we can find great hope in the fact that Christ bears patiently with us. But it also impacts how we view one another. We ought to bear patiently with one another. Culturally, we have lost the concept and the art of charity. And I don't mean the kind of charity that we give to the poor. Charity is often used as a word of benevolence or giving uh, food and money to the poor. I'm not talking about that kind of charity. I mean the kind of charity we ought to give to everyone indiscriminately, especially those who are weaker or younger in the faith. Charity comes from the word charis, or grace. It means extending grace, even when someone does something or says something foolish or untrue. Charity means bearing with and being patient with folks with whom we might have deep disagreements. And in fact, that person might be dead wrong. Now, I want to also say that you might be wrong. I am likely wrong most of the time. But we're to bear patiently with one another. A person might be deceived. They might be stubborn. They just might be slow to come into an understanding. No doubt that can be frustrating at times. Christ himself gets frustrated. And he corrects and challenges unbelief. 
Nevertheless, he bears with and is patient toward his disciples. Friends, faith is not one and done. We are a work in progress. Friends, bear patiently in these polarizing times with one another. Don't write each other off. Don't assume the worst motivations of one another. Extend grace to one another. Forgive one another. Overlook sin and offense and pray for one another. Christ is at work in the hearts of his people. And that work takes a lifetime. And only in glory will we know fully, see fully, and be fully transformed. There's great comfort in that truth. Let's extend that grace to one another. Finally, I want us to behold the Lord Jesus Christ, this one who bears patiently with us. After the disciples got off the boat, Jesus is confronted with a blind man. He takes the blind man away to minister to him. I love this picture. He takes him by the hand. It's not for show. It's not not for some grand thing, but he wants to, to make this blind man see. But it's also an illustration for his disciples. And he takes the man by the hand intimately, cares for him, spits, which we looked at before is a, was a sort of a medicinal act in the Jewish world to, to use spittle. Spits, puts it on the eyes and touches him. And then really interestingly, um, unlike any other healing in all of Scripture, he has a conversation about the healing with the man. He asks the question, do you see anything yet? And, and, and you could almost read it as, Jesus isn't sure if what he did really worked. Obviously, I don't think that's the case. What he's trying to do is he's having this dialogue because he wants his disciples to understand the spiritual reality of the healing that is going on in their own hearts and lives, the transformation from them being spiritually blind to being op- their eyes being open to who he is. And so Jesus says, do you see anything? And of course, one thing that we note is that it required Jesus, right? It required divine intervention. We also note that this process isn't one and done. So Jesus touches him. And then says, do you see anything? And the man says, well, I look and I see people, but they look, I think they're people, but they look like trees walking around. Uh, uh, the only thing I could come up with, it reminded me of the Ents in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> um, you wonder if Tolkien may have taken uh, his idea from here. Who knows? But then Jesus laid hands on the man again, and his sight is restored, and he sees clearly. You see, the disciples were in process. They were coming to an understanding of who Jesus is. Interestingly, I've talked about the various parallels with the previous section. In the previous section, it was a man who was deaf, who couldn't hear, and who had a speech impediment. Remember that one, Jesus touches his tongue and unstops his ears. Um, But you'll remember in that that the, the man... After, after being healed, says, uh, these, says these words. He says, and they were astonished beyond measure, 
saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It's a, it's a declaration of faith, an acknowledgement of who Jesus is. But here in our text, with the healing of the blind man, there is none of that. And it, it's sort of a stark contrast to what had gone on before. And it begs the question, why? Why doesn't the man say anything? Or why is there a difference uh, with this text? And I think the reason being is that Jesus is going to highlight, is highlighting not necessarily this blind man's faith, but the declaration of Peter himself. In the very next section, Peter, Jesus will ask his disciples point blank, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter will confess, and we'll look at again, we're going to look at this next week. Peter will confess that Jesus is in fact the Christ. It's this moment as if the scales have come off Peter's eyes and he sees Jesus for who he is. Here is the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who was promised long ago. And yet, and yet, we'll see in a little bit that Jesus, even though Peter confesses him as Christ, he turns to Jesus and rebukes him because he says he has to go to the cross. Peter is a work in progress. And it's a process. But this is the good news. Jesus changes our hearts. Jesus is doing a work in us that he will complete. It is not one and done. We are not left to our own devices. It's not as if we enter through the cross and then we climb our way and clamber our way up to heaven. But Christ is with us. His Spirit is with us, transforming us daily from one degree of glory to another. He bears patiently with us. And what I want us to see this morning is that we have a Lord and Savior who does not leave us to our devices, but he loved us. And his patience led him all the way to the cross. When everyone had abandoned him, when Peter had denied him, when Judas had betrayed him, when the people had cried out, crucify him, he bore patiently the cross for us that we might be changed. Friends, what a glorious Savior we have. Open your eyes and see the glorious one who loved us, who patiently bears with us, who dies for us, and who is transforming us by the power of His Spirit from one degree of glory to another. Oh, that all our unbelief would be done away with in a moment. We look forward to that day. But until then, all praise be to Jesus, who is with us, who is present by His Spirit. Let us bear patiently with one another. Let's pray.